Well, good morning to each of you. It's so good to be with you this morning. If you are new at Joliet First, we want to welcome you. Where our mission at Joliet First is to become a community of hope. We see from the very beginning of time that God calls the farmers of that day to leave the edges of their field. And so here at this church, we're asking this question. What does it look like for us to become the edge of the field for our community? So not only is our mission to become a community of hope, but we are at Joliet first. We are trying to make Joliet first. And so we here live by four markers or principles that, that kind of guide us into who God wants us to be and how we become a community of hope. And so we say this at this church that we believe whatever you seek becomes the center of who you are. And so we will relentlessly pursue God with the same intensity at which he pursues each of us. And as we enter into this relationship with God, there's, there's a love that's, that's, that's given between each other to the point that it begins to overflow. And out of that overflow, we begin to invest our lives in other people. We give of our time, we give our gifts, we give our talents, and even our money to God. And to other people. So we seek, we invest with the hope that we will restore with a little bit of our and a little bit of God's grace. We will restore people back into the image in which they were divinely designed to be. And it is when, when they are restored that they now become an image to the world. We can send them out into the community and say, this is what hope looks like for people. So we believe in sending people into our neighborhoods. Welcome to Juliet first this morning. If you weren't here last week, we missed you. We began a new series entitled The Church Now. And, and here's what we discussed just to catch you up quickly. Last week we said this, that, that often in the church we refer to the children of the church as the future of the church. And then when all of a sudden they become teenagers and they leave, we're surprised at why they left the church. And so I said last week that, that the reason children leave the church is because we've never taught them how to be the church. In fact, we have this, this symbol up here, which literally means children, but it's also translated member of. And we looked at Jesus' life last week in Luke 18, and we see that he's on the way to the cross. He's got this, this master mission that he's supposed to carry out. And in the midst of that, these nagging little children are coming up and yanking on his cloak. And his disciples, his disciples just, just for a minute say, excuse us kids, could you stop touching Jesus just, just for a minute? You see, he's got important things to do. He's got kingdom things to do. Could you just step aside? And Jesus says, my kingdom belongs to such as these. Now, we said this last week as we began to unpack this word belongs. It's actually translated he or she is or they are. Not they will be, they will grow up into, but rather they are right now. And we said this last week that kids are the kingdom of God. And we believe that they are members right now. And so we learned, we learned some great principles last week. If you didn't hear the message, you should go and listen to it because we learned four great principles on how kids represent the kingdom of God and how we can learn from them how to live into, as God's people, the kingdom, which he calls us. So this morning, would you pray for me as we begin this message this morning? Not that we haven't begun already, but would you pray for me? Lord, we give thanks for this time together. We pray that you open our minds and our ears.
our ears to what you would what you would say to us. Lord, may your presence be thick in this place. May it may it meet us in these moments. May you speak to us. May you speak truth into our lives. May we hear not what we want to hear, but what you would teach us. Lord, we give thanks for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just get right at it, shall we? Uh, have you ever met people who have so many problems that they actually project those problems onto other people? In other words, problematic people tend to project. What we say at our house is hurt people hurt people. And the problem is hurt people. What's odd about hurt people is they tend to manifest their problematic problems uh, and they project them onto the other people by saying to other people the very thing that they're struggling with. And so what, what happens is, is somebody deals with a specific issue and instead of taking responsibility that they go and they start picking at you for that very same thing. And I, you are smart people. I know you get it, right? You understand this. And so over time, as relationships tend to unfold, you begin to realize that what they are projecting onto you is the issue that they're dealing with. And their issue is really their identity. Uh, I got to give you a few examples. And I think through this in my own personal life, you know, I really, really am struggling with what it means to have a good diet. My problem with diet is not just eating the food. It's the people who tend to tell me, Pastor, you're not fat. You don't need to diet. My kids tell me every day I'm fat, and they were patting my belly last night. But, uh, but people will tell you, you're not fat. You don't need to go on a diet. But here's the reality. People will tell you that because they need somebody to be heavy with them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want you to get healthy because, I, you know, I want you to be heavy with me. And so they'll make little jabs like, like, why are you eating that healthy food? You know, you only live once. If I'm going to live on this earth, I'm going to enjoy the food that I actually eat. And so before you know it, in the midst of dieting, you start to give up because people are telling you like, hey, you don't need to lose weight. The reality is they just want you to be heavy with them. I also think about uh, some of you have been great employees in your lifetime. You've had raving reviews over the course of your life. But all of a sudden you get this, this foreman or this boss who, who begins to pick at you. They begin to pick apart everything that you're doing. And in your mind you're like, I'm not sure. Why am I, why am I being picked on? Why are the expectations being brought up to this level? And you've even had coworkers come up to you and say, Dude, your boss has it out for you. What's the deal? But as you begin to, to see things unfold, you realize that maybe your foreman or your boss was very insecure about their leadership. And their greatest insecurity was in your ability to work and to show what work looks like. And so their fear over time was that somebody is working so hard that they'll end up replacing me because they're so good at what they do. And so, they, so maybe your foreman or your boss has projected onto you their insecurity and their fear of you taking their job because you've been a great employee. Where are my, where are my students this morning? Students, some of you guys are extremely intelligent. And intelligence is intimidating. And maybe you've had those people who have kind of picked on you at school, who have called you nerds or have made fun of you or pushed you and picked on you. But what's funny is, is they are projecting onto you their insecurity of their own intelligence. What I find funny is often in life, the people who bully the nerds when they're younger are the ones who become the biggest losers later on in life. While the nerds tend to excel and do quite well. 
but they project their insecurity, their intelligence onto you. I think we do this in the church. See, I think our greatest problem in the church is that we tend to project our spiritual bankruptcy on the spiritual leaders of the church. Somebody give me an amen to that. <laughs> you see, we, we'll end up using language, and you hear, hear this often throughout churches, that I'm not being fed, or I don't, I don't like the pastor's teaching, or, or I'm not learning any new insights. But those statements, what we're saying to people is that we have learned to pick up the spiritual spoon and feed ourselves. I think we do this as parents too. That often, often parents, parents project their lack of spiritual leadership onto the leadership of the church. A perfect example, um, I was a youth pastor and I had a conversation with a father at one point and he said this, he said, my daughter's life is miserable. She's depressed, she's on drugs, she's, she's hanging out with people I don't want her hanging out with. And he said, but I think the problem is, is there spiritual form? She's so spiritually bankrupt because we've had such a high turnover rate of youth pastors here at the church. Which I really took offense at that. That really bugged me. And so as I began to listen to him, he began to blame the spiritual leadership of the church for, for his daughter's lack of spiritual leadership in her life. And the more I listened the more I realized that he hadn't taken ownership as the spiritual leader of his daughter's life. And so this morning, we said last week that kids are the kingdom of God. And, and, and I want to say that this week, you're right, pastors form and shape your kid's life. But it's the pastors who are connected most to their kids, who walk, who talk, who live, who breathe with their kids. Parents, you are the pastor's. So this morning, I want to I want to speak on this subject because we said last week, kids of the kingdom. This week, we're talking about parents as pastors because I truly believe that spiritual formation happens at home. And so this morning, if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, we're going to read this wonderful text about spiritual leadership and development with our children. Many of you could probably recite this. I'm not that good, but... Deuteronomy 6. For those of you new to the church and you don't know where Deuteronomy is, just open to the front portion of your Bible. You'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. You'll see it right in the front there. It says this, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing in the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all the decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may, hear this, enjoy long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey, that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Now we know this text right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Listen to this. Impress. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. 
the entire life right there. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord, your God, brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities. Listen to this. You did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things. You did not provide. Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When you eat and you are satisfied, listen to this, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oath in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Now we'll skip down to verse 20 because this is pertinent to today. This is in the future. When your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, the rules that were just given, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded, tell him, listen to this, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as in the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for those of you new to the story of God, uh, I think a great place to start is the Exodus narrative. In fact, much of the Christian life, much of our life, much of Jesus' life, and much of the Israelites' life is hinges upon this Exodus story. And so we kind of have to take you back in the past to the Israelite people to understand the present text that we're studying this morning. And so it all starts in the very beginning and when God commands, I love this, God commands his people to fill the earth I've got to be honest, when God commands his people to fill the earth, this is the only command that we do naturally and we do well. Um, But the Israelites took that to heart. And it says in, in in the Exodus narrative that the Israelite people became too numerous, too fruitful, too numerous for the new Pharaoh who no longer had a relational connection to the descendants of Abraham. And so Pharaoh notices that, that these, these people are beginning to grow and, and they're outnumbering the Egyptian people and he becomes fearful. And so what he does is he's fearful that if an enemy were to attack, the Israelites were so great that they would join the enemy and then the kingdom of Egypt would be overthrown. So it says in the text that he put, he put slave masters over them. He dealt with them shrewdly. He made their lives miserable and terrible and wretched. And and, and over a lifetime, the slave masters oppressed the people. Now, we look over that word, I think, way too much. I want you to think about oppression with me for a minute. You see, the reason why Pharaoh actually doesn't have a name in the Bible is because all Pharaohs are the same. They lead the same way. They lead with with spears in the back, with whips. They lead with violence. They lead with hatred. And really, for us, is the image of death. But what I love, what I love in every story where we see death, 
is there's always a story filled with hope. You see, that's part of our job as we read scripture is to understand the redemptive parts of God's story. And so it's interesting who is named in the beginning of the Exodus narrative is Shephra and Pua, two midwives. Now check this out. Pharaoh, Pharaoh wanted all boys, males born of the Israelite people to be killed. And Shephra and Pua began to, to take out these boys and, 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 the more the Israelites had kids, the more these midwives gave babies, and they didn't kill them. And see, I, I think why, why they are named in the beginning of the story is because God doesn't speak in hope of generalities. Rather, he speaks about hope in specifics. And here it is. They're bringing life. And out of this, out of this comes the leader named Moses, who becomes the leader of this, of this journey to freedom. And this journey to freedom is really about God's people becoming images, not only of freedom or of life, of hope and love, but they are to be images of who God is to the world. The the problem, though, for Moses, as we begin to see, is that oppression has made an impression on them. Oppression has made a huge impression on their life. So as they come out of Egypt, they're still dependent upon the one who abused them, who beat them, who made them work and and produce all these bricks for building an empire. And they had, their, their, their imaginations had been hijacked by Pharaoh to the point that they couldn't see what hope looked like even when God was taking them out into hope. I kind of liken it to this, that often there are women who are abused in life. And and, and they are abused so much, so not just physically, but mentally, to the point where they don't understand. They can't see because all they know is an abusive relationship. And it's almost next to impossible for them to get out of it. And so God... God wants to take a pause. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. You have these books in line that begin to talk about this great narrative of moving to freedom. But God says, we need to take a pause for a minute. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a halt. It's a wait a minute moment. Because God realizes that his people, their lives, their minds are shaped by Pharaoh. And so Moses says this. He says, impress this command of love onto your lives and into your hearts. And so I want, I want you to hear this word impress with me for a minute. Because impress, when you begin to unpack the Hebrew word of impress, there's this imagery. There's this imagery of, of shaping and shaving and making a sharp edge. Making a precise tool that is used for piercing. That's what he means by impress. So I want to impress this upon your hearts. But see, our minds, when we hear this word of making a sharp edge or piercing for, immediately we go to the pharaohs of the world. That whatever I'm making is going to be a sword. It's going to be a spear. It's going to be a weapon used for violence. But here's here's what Moses wants to say to us today. Is that as we are being shaped and molded and we are being, in, being given edges. And we are made for, for piercing the world and is not pierced with violence. But rather we are pierced with God's love. We are piercing God's love into the world. 
Wow, somebody, somebody get excited about that. that. That's exciting, right? That you are being shaped and formed. That's what it means. Love the Lord your God with your whole self so that whatever you become is love. You see, the whole plan for Israel was they were to become hope for the world. But they were so shaped by Egypt that they couldn't understand that. They couldn't see that mission for them. And so Moses says to us today, impress these things. Impress this command into your lives and into your heart. You see, this morning, I think Moses wants to to tell his people, no longer will oppression make the impression, but rather redemption will become the new identity for the world. And I got to be honest, the hope begins with our children. The hope begins with our children. But guess what? It begins with you as their pastor. And so that's why when Moses says, impress this command of love into your children, he understands that that you are the you are the pastors, that parents are the pastors. You see, going to church, going to the temple was supplementary spiritual formation. And Moses began to understand that, that spiritual formation happens at home. You see, our kids are so impressionable. They're like sponges. They receive everything. And if you don't take charge of your kids, your grandkids, your nephew's lives, your niece's lives, if you don't take charge, the pharaohs of the world will. And then we're surprised because we don't spiritually lead our children that they turn out to be violent, hateful, spiteful, as we said last week, suspicious of, suspect of, looking at everybody as an enemy and a threat. Because we have not taken responsibility as parents. And so this morning, I want to work with three ideas this morning with you on how we can be parents as pastors. Now listen, this isn't just for people who are parents. We're talking about grandparents. Some of you are like, I don't have kids yet. And some of you are like, I'm already past that stage. We have an application for you at the end as well. But here's how we're parents as pastors. The first point is this, is I think often... I think as as pastors, we should do life with our children and not for our children. You see, there are two ways in which we do life for our children. The first is this, is that often we like to remove our kids from the culture. Here's what I mean by that. Often, in, in, in Christian circles and tendencies, we begin to perceive the culture and the world around us as a threat to our kids' spiritual formation. And so we take them out of environments, we take them out of schools, we take them out of uh, secular places, and we begin to put them in private institutions and closed off places from the world. And I'm not opposed to that kind of education, I've had that kind of education. But we, we pull our kids out of the culture. And we begin, instead of teaching our kids to do life with people, we can create environments for them. And we kind of create this life for them. And the only people that they ever learn to be Jesus to is themselves. And the last time I checked, Jesus is not sent to be Jesus to Jesus. Jesus is called to be sent to the world, to be Jesus to those who are sick, to those who are needy and, and, and in desperate need of new life. I gotta be honest, you can disagree with me on this one, and, and really, you might be right. I could be wrong. 
But I think when we pull our kids out of culture, two things happen. One, we, we begin to lose our ability to speak into the culture around us. I think the other thing is this, is that pulling our kids out of culture is completely antithetical to Christ's message. In fact, that kind of movement is anti-Christ. You see, we believe in a God who has sent his son. God himself has sent his son not into the church, not into a private institution, but into the world where the world posed a major threat. But I think God trusted in his son's spiritual formation and his life to be able to walk into the culture and give it a different view of what life could look like. And so you as parents have a responsibility to be spiritual leaders, not to pull them out, but rather to put them in as what images of hope look like to the world, just like Israel was to be for the world. Give them a new understanding of what life could be like. You see, that's where, that's where impact and change happen, is when we push our kids back into the culture with the precision and the tools to pierce the world with love. I think the other area that we, when we talk about with and not for, is that often we want to pull our kids out of painful experiences. Listen, I get it. In life, there are times where your kid is going to get beat up. They're going to get hit. They're going to get bullied on Facebook, right? They're going to come home with a terrible report card. And instead of teaching our kids life lessons, what we end up doing start doing life for them. We walk into every manageable problem and we start managing it for them. And I think that's really a huge problem. I was thinking about this the other day. My son, Miles, was playing baseball. He was playing third base. His foot was on the base. The runner was on the base. And I look over and the runner is stomping on his foot over and over and over again. And Miles, he's a little pistol. He just stood there with his foot on the base and stared at the kid. But I had to be honest, as a parent, I wanted to run down the third baseline and start stomping on that kid's foot myself. And this is what we do, right? And when our kids experience pain, we experience pain. And it's in those moments that we want to jump in for them and take that pain away. But listen, you have to understand that spiritual formation happens, as Moses said, when we are talking with our children around the dinner tables. When we're driving. That to school and we're, we're talking and walking and living and breathing with them about who God is in their life. We often have conversations with our son. Son, you know, people around you will not be patient. You need to be patient with others. We, we try to teach our kids and raise our kids those things. And so what I want you to hear this morning is that parents as pastors must do life with their kids and not for their kids. Here's another way that I think we become parents as pastors. Uh, I think words make a huge difference. In fact, I believe that words have the power to give life or they have the power to give death. In fact, our creation story begins with words. When God speaks, life begins. And I think sometimes as parents, in the heat of the moment, and i got to be honest, I had a few of those moments this week with my kids. There are times where we don't speak life into our kids' lives. 
And I think as parents, as pastors, we have to be prepared to deal with the questions that our kids are going to have with us. Mom and dad, why do we? What does? How come? Right? Kids come with us with these questions. And I think often parents are not ready to deal with their faith. It simply is, you're going to church with me, son. I don't need to explain why. You're just going to do it. You're going to go do this. You're going to go do that. And our kids are asking why, and we're just telling them what to do. It's interesting in verse 20, it says this. Notice that questions are being asked about. It says, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and all those stupid laws the Lord makes us do? Listen to what he says. Dad, I want you to tell him this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. You see, not only are words essential, but as pastors, we have to learn to tell the story. This is part of the word part, is telling God's story to our kids. Notice as he begins to ask questions, the father goes back into the past and he takes God's redemptive story, his hope story, his love story, and he brings it into the present with his kids. And he begins to say, do you remember? I want you to know that when we were in Egypt, there was a God by his mighty hand who moved us out of slavery. Now, some of you may not know this, but the law was simply this. Whoever frees the slaves are the ones who rules the slaves. And so the father is saying in this moment, I want you to go back in this moment in time when God's hand, not Pharaoh's, moved us into freedom and moved us into life. And we've been given a new hope. And so he begins to tell the story of God to his kids. You see, I think we fail at this often. One of the ways that we've, we've dealt and managed with the move to Joliet first, you know, we loved the house that we had. We loved the community we lived in. We loved the church that we were part of. We had lots of great friends. And it's been a huge change for us. We had no clue we were coming to your church. And within three weeks, we packed up and we moved out here. And, but instead of talking with our kids about daddy's new job, we would sit down every night at the dinner table and we would talk with our boys. We would talk about the things we loved about our house and our home there. But then we would talk with our kids about the mission that God has for his people here. And we would, we would, we would kind of pull them and have them gravitate towards that, that we're not going to a place that's worse, but rather we're moving to a place where God is moving and we want to be part of that. Shaping, molding, creating edges so our, our kids can learn to, to move into life and understand how they fit into God's story. You must learn to tell the story. Words matter. You must learn to tell the story. The last one is this, and I'm sure it's going to be no surprise to you. But we have to be present. We have to be present. We have to model for our children what life should look like. You see, I think God's word must be accompanied by godly action. Do you remember last week when I asked you this question when we're talking about obedience? I said something along the lines of this. What if we were as obedient to God as we expect our children to be obedient to us? You see, kids are going to ask you questions about your faith. They're going to ask you questions about what you believe. But you cannot give them a shadow of a doubt that you live out the very thing that you believe. 
They can question your, your beliefs, but they can't question how you live. And so part of that, it's not, we always have this argument, is it quality of time or is it quantity of time? It's both. It's both. It's not one or the other. And I love what Moses tells us this morning. It is every aspect of our lives that we are to be present with our kids. Teaching them, molding them, shaping them, forming them into who God has called them to be. So that they are given the tools of life to go into the world and pierce this violent world with love, peace, and hope. So, some of you who don't have kids, you're asking, what does this have to do with me? It's a good question. Uh, fair question. Maybe you're past the time of life of where you don't have kids. I think the first one is this, is who are you doing life with? Who are you doing life with this morning? You notice that Jesus was always with his disciples. He was always with people. I mean, he had his times and moments where he needed a quiet reflection. But God was always doing life with people. Who are you doing life with? The other question I want to ask you is, how are you telling God's story? You see, I think often we privatize our faith and we forget that our, our faith is meant to be very public and open. I can remember somebody saying once, they once said that my work life is completely separate from my faith life. Whoa, the church has failed somewhere in there, right? No, 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 no. How are you telling God's story? In the places that you work, the people that you pick up, the people that you call, the people that you talk to, the people that you're eating with. How are you telling God's story? The last one is be present. I'm sorry, but this Pokemon Go game is driving me nuts. Because this is what our presence looks like today. This is, I'm being present with my phone. And I look like an absolute fool. I was in line, Seth and I were eating lunch the other day, and I was in line at um, Chipotle, and I was just looking at everybody in line, and they're all like this. Now, I love my phone. I mean, I would like to go to a landline eventually, but, you know, um, I'm just thinking, how are we present in life? How are you present in life? You know, often we'll say things like, this is an escape for me. I like to get on Facebook, and I like to, because I don't have to think, I can just get away from everything. But when we have a constant world that's filled with people of just getting away from their problems and issues, we don't, we have yet to learn how to be present with people. This is why we don't have great communication skills anymore. This is why we, we have problems having conversations with people. We've lost our ability to be present with people. So, you don't have kids, you can do those three things too. But I believe this morning, I believe this morning that spiritual formation happens at home. And you parents, you parents are more than a pastor than I am. I truly believe that this morning. So I will pray for you to be a great parent, but also be a great pastor. Because kids of the kingdom, and if kids of the kingdom, parents are the pastors. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thanks for this time this morning. Lord, our kids really challenge us in many ways. And so, Lord, our, our prayer this morning is that as we begin to pastor and spiritually lead our kids, that part of impressing upon their lives is shaping them and forming them into who you have called them to be. Lord, look, give us the responsibility. Let us take ownership. Let us own up to our need to, to have ownership. 
And let's quit farming out our spiritual formation to everybody else. So Lord, I pray for folks from all walks of life here. I pray for parents. Give them the strength. Give them the fortitude. You know that being a pastor as a parent is not easy when your kid is screaming their head off. But Lord, that's where we need your strength and your guidance. I pray for grandparents, aunts and uncles. Lord, even though they may not be our direct kids, in some way they are our kids, kids of the kingdom. And so may we also be shaping and forming our kids that we are related to and that we daily encounter. And Lord, I pray for those who are who are expecting, who have are past the walk of life with kids, that we we begin to do life with people. We're telling your story and we're present. Lord, I give thanks for this time. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, this is one of my favorite times. We're going to let you go here in about five minutes. But uh, part of the Christian faith is declaring to the world, declaring to the church that our life has changed. And so baptism is one of the essential things that we believe in the church is important to who we are as Christians. And so this morning, I want us to understand that that as we we... we we dunk Glenn this morning. We are putting to death the old life. It's a representation of putting to death the old life and raising to life with Christ. You see, I, I, I love this Samaritan story, the Samaritan woman, because God says, your eternal life begins right now. And so I don't believe that heaven is something we wait for, but rather the moment we've said yes to Christ and baptism is a representation of the eternal life that we get to live now. And so Glenn has made a commitment to Christ. And he, has, he wants to say to his church family, church family, I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your pushing. I need your impression, you know, your impressing on my life. And so I'm going to invite Glenn to come up here this morning as we baptize him. No, it's warm. It's like a hot tub. (laughs) You can just sit down in there, bud. Glenn, is there anything that you would like to say? It's good. He said he's glad he's found this church. And um, he's growing with God. And he believes that this is the next step. And he he thanks you, church, for supporting him in that. So, all right. You're going to cross the picture over your hand. There you go. You can put your other hand up here. Glenn, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's a towel here somewhere. All right, bud. You can come on out. I'll... Let me pray for you real quick, all right? Lord, we thank you for our brother, Glenn. We thank you for his commitment to you. We're just thankful that he has decided to live for you. You know his story. You know his walk of life. You know that it's not easy for him. But he is committed and he's been disciplined and he's been daily devoting his life to you. Lord, we we pray that as a church family, we continue to gather around him, support him, love him, and push him to be who you've called him to be. We're thankful for Glenn and we're thankful for this opportunity to express, express our faith in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Pastor Brad alluded to this uh, when he was uh, preparing to do one of the coolest things that a pastor could ever do. Um, I, I want to challenge you with this thought for a minute. Um, Glenn, Glenn's been saved, you know, uh, and, and a lot of us have. Um, but consider this. As the church, realize that God has trusted this church with Glenn. Okay? Now, now Glenn understands his connection with the Lord. And Glenn understands what God has done for him. But I want us to understand what God is wanting for us in this moment. Okay? Now, Glenn's wet. Okay? And, and I think some of your t-shirts this morning when you leave church should be wet as well. Go give him a hug. Okay? Go shake his hand and go tell him that you care about him and that as a member of this church that you care about his future. He's got a, he's got a kid on the way. You know, and, and we need to be the church for Glenn. Okay. Would you stand with me as we, as we pray and go out, read this with me, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred. Let me bring love where there is injury, pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Glory to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Hey, go say hi to Glenn. We need a few people to help us move instruments. Have a great week.